All right, well, this being the third Sunday of the month, that makes it Family Sunday, so our little ones will be staying with us today as we continue in our study in Amos this morning, looking particularly at Amos chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, what the Lord showed me. Now, if you're visiting with us today and jumping in kind of here in two-thirds of the way, or I guess seven-ninths of the way to the end of the book of Amos, or if you just need your memory jogged from last week, let's kind of take a, a brief overview to consider where we've been here in the book. You see, the sin of Jeroboam the first, the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, was unique amongst the leaders of God's people. His sin was not simply demonic paganism, but instead Jeroboam refashioned God in the manner that he thought that he needed him to be. And having replaced the immutable standard of righteousness in the midst of the nation with nothing less than a cheap counterfeit that still had the name of Yahweh attached to it, the people fell into the vilest of depravity, into a very particular madness, believing their own deceitful hearts above the truth that was set directly before them. And so a few centuries later, during the reign of Jeroboam II, his namesake, in two years before a devastating earthquake, Amos, the shepherd from Tekoa, did not hear but instead saw a word from the Lord. In Amos chapter 1, verse 2, it says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. And when He roars, a very partial God shows no partiality. For there is an anger that comes forth out of love that is stronger than any, love, than any anger that has ever come forth out of hate. And so the Lord speaks to them, to his people, and he says, Hear this word, you fat cows. Not simply an insult, but a spiritual reality. Because out of all of the people of the earth, he specifically knew them. He was intimate with them. Because of that, they will meet him, Yahweh himself, the God of hosts, the God of armies, the God of war. Prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. Not because he doesn't know you, but specifically because he does. Because he does, he speaks lamentation over them. A very complex song from the heart of the most complex being in existence. A song of anger mixed with sadness. God is angry, and rightly so, for the virgin Israel is breaking his heart. Now the truth is that if you're going to place your trust somewhere, you would do well to know who you're trusting, and not just think that you do. When it comes to reality, labels alone are not sufficient. These are a people that claimed that they desired the day of the Lord, and yet Amos says they desire the day of the Lord unto their utter destruction. The day of the Lord's coming will not be a day of victory for them, but a day of sorrow because they did not actually know the God whose day it would be. They just thought they did. And so rightly well, the word says, 
God told them to hate evil and to love good. But instead, they hated good and loved evil. And so the word of the Lord that Amos saw was woe to you. For justice will roll down. It will turn itself upon you as water. Woe indeed. Particularly to those who were the least willing in Israel to be woeful. Woe to those at ease. The prophet says that they feel at ease and they feel secure and yet their feelings do not match reality. And so they are indeed neither at ease or secure. And yet they remain in denial. We've asked ourselves, how can they do that? Why would they do that? The answer, Scripture says, is because they are those that bring their God in their own hand. They have created themselves for themselves. Not simply the false image of a demon, but instead they have created for themselves the God of Israel anew in a way that is more palatable for them, that fits their agenda, that is more pragmatic. They are those that bring their God in their own hand. And the reality is, is when your God looks an awfully lot like you, you end up looking awfully righteous. When in actuality, you're not. Such provocation spurns the Lord to anger. Such provocation will make a holy God swear. And having none greater to swear by than himself, he swears by himself. He swears by himself the promise of salvation, and he swears by himself death to those who would trample it underfoot. You see, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. In the last two weeks, we spent quite a bit of time out of Amos in Hebrews in chapter 6 and in chapter 12. And in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5 and 6, the author of Hebrews writes and says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, the discipline of the Lord comes in a lot of different ways. It has a lot of different facets. Some are more pleasant than the others. The discipline of the Lord includes things like encouragement and teaching. It includes reproof, reproof and rebuke. And when it goes on unheeded to the point that an apostasy that God has said he will never allow to happen is about to actually happen. The discipline of the Lord includes death. The Lord will take his people to himself before he lets the promise fail and his name be mocked among the nations. National Israel has committed the sin unto death. And now... In Amos chapter 7, verse 1 through 9, comes the word of judgment that Amos saw concerning the house of Israel. In Amos 7, verse 1, it says, This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the later growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the later growth after the king's mowings. And when they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O oh Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. 
It shall not be, said the Lord. And this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. And then I said, Oh, Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. Well, here we find Amos learning a lesson when he sees the word of judgment from God. Now here in the next couple of chapters, we are going to see judgment on display. Thus far, if you break the book down into kind of larger sections, we've seen the introduction with the judgment of the nations that surround Israel. And then we've been talking specifically about why judgment is going to come upon Israel. And when you arrive at chapter 7, we get down to the penalty phase. This is where the sentence is being handed down and what the judgment is going to look like, the judgment that Amos saw, there will be five that are given. Three will stand, and two will not. We may be tempted to ask ourselves, why only three? If if the Lord is going to show this prophet three particular judgments that are going to come upon the people of Israel because they have replaced him with a counterfeit and all that followed, why is it that God pronounces five judgments upon them when only three of those judgments will actually be executed? Only three will be allowed to stand. I think that we'll find before we're done today that the answer to that is because God is a disciplining God. What you see here at the beginning of chapter 7 is discipline and education according to the will of a sovereign Lord. Discipline and education. It's not simply coming to the nation as a whole, but is specifically coming to a prophet. Well, the two that will not be are the first ones that are addressed. Judgments by locust and fire. These are pretty straightforward. I don't think we have to do a lot of doctrinal background to be able to understand that locust is used as judgment by God throughout both the Old and New Testaments. We see it mentioned. Of course, your mind goes back to the Exodus. It might also turn your mind to 2 Chronicles chapter 7 where the Lord is speaking to Solomon after the dedication of the temple. And in verse 11 of chapter 7, it says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. And all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. And then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. 
One of the great tragedies of the narrative of northern Israel is the reason that destruction is coming upon them is because not only did they refuse to humble themselves and so see the blessings of the Lord as God promised he would deliver, but they went so far as in their betrayal and in their counterfeit production that this, O Israel, is thy God who brought you out of Egypt. In doing that, they even circumvented the very presence of God himself in the temple that was the means by which mercy could come to them. Man, Satan will never, ever lob the limbs off of a tree if he has the opportunity to cut off the root. And that is exactly what has happened. The Lord gave them provision through his presence in this very place. And it was the very place that Jeroboam said in his heart, if these people keep going down there to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, their heart will be turned away from me. It will be turned back to the house of David and my kingdom will fail. Therefore, build two golden bulls and we will say this, O Israel, is thy Elohim that led you out of Egypt. We will cut off the very means that you could turn to that would bring about mercy. In Joel chapter 1, the judgment of God through the plague of locusts spoke this way, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, and what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten, and what the hopping locust had left, the destroying locust have eaten. There is no doubt that locusts are a scourge that is sent by the Lord upon the people. Notice that it comes after the first cutting, when the late growth is beginning to come on, when the king's mowers have already taken their share. What this says is the king and the nobles will eat, but you won't. And yet it does not stand, and so he moves on to a judgment of fire, a fire that even devours the depths of the water. And contrary to what you would often read in your commentaries, I would tell you that what you're seeing here is not a description of severe drought. Instead, it is Sodom and Gomorrah, divine fire, devouring fire, that chews up not only the land, but also devours the deep. The fact of the matter is, is the locusts that precede it and the sword that follow it neither one of which are imagery, there is no reason to believe that the fire spoken of as the second judgment that Amos saw is imagery either. doesn't fit the context. So here you see the judgment that Amos saw. He didn't hear about it the way that me and you were talking about it. He didn't imagine it in his own mind's eye. This is what the Lord God showed him. He showed him the plagues. He showed him the locust devouring, destroying, and all of the hunger and famine and disease that was going to come along with that. He showed him the fire burning to the extent that the waters of the deep were devoured. And what is Amos's response? He pleads with God, Lord, please forgive. Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Amos is beside himself. He knows based off what he's seen, because look, everybody knows what a locust looks like, and everybody knows what a fire looks like when it's burning. 
But Amos has just seen with his own eyes a swarm of locusts that devours the land. That leaves children and old women starving. He has seen fire that licks up water as though it was licking up an accelerant. He knows that Jacob has no hope. It's interesting because actually when you look at the nation of Israel, at this particular point in time is one of their strongest times militarily. And yet, when Amos considers the strength of Israel as it is and considers the devouring judgment of God, he says, Jacob is so small. He's so small. Man, he's about to get wood chippered. This deal will be over. How can he stand? Lord, please forgive. The word in the Hebrew literally means release. Please release. Please let go of this. Don't do it. Have you ever been there? You ever been on your knees? When you had done something that was far more evil and heinous than your human conception of righteousness and wickedness could ever actually comprehend, and then God showed you what you did? And the judgment of a righteous and holy God that was going to come along with it, have you ever found yourself there? Pleading based off what He had revealed to you? This is what they call the conviction that accompanies salvation. Lord, please forgive. Please release. You ever been there? Friend, if you haven't, you need to check your salvation. I'm telling you, it's not a good sign if you haven't. Let me tell you, when Jesus saves you, He's saving you from something significant. Not insignificant. Oh Lord, please, relent. How can He stand? And what is Yahweh's response? Yahweh relents. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. The locust shall not be. The fire shall not be. This particular word has some really heavy connotations in the Hebrew. As a matter of fact, if you read it in the King James Version, it will say that the Lord God repented that God repented and said, I will turn from this. I was going to do it, but now I'm not. If you look at it in the New American Standard, it goes so far as to translate it as God changed his mind. Changed his mind. So we look at that, and we have a tendency to, you know, anthropomorphize God real bad. We, we forget we think about ourselves as kind of the, the big, complex, heavy thinker. You know, we think about God as the simpleton, kind of, you know, pure tone. You know, God is love, and, 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 and we think about him as nothing else. Or, or we see God in his wrath, and we think about him, you know, in his judgment and his justice and in nothing else. But the reality is the scripture tells us that we are the simpletons, and God is the heavy thinker. That we are the little children, and that he is the father. And so... We look at God changing his mind. And we all too often project ourselves upon him. And we think about ourselves when we change our minds. And, you know, we'll have an idea that pops into our head. And we think this is a good idea. 
for whatever reason. Perhaps we think it's a good idea based off of intellect and logic. Perhaps we think it's a good idea based off emotion and desire. And certainly, as angry as the Lord is, we've all found our place, ourselves in the place where when we look at something, we think it's a good idea in the moment based off of emotion and desire, especially when it's being fueled by this kind of anger from a broken heart, and we've thought it would be good to do X. But then you sleep on it. You think about it for a while. Maybe a loved one comes along and says, you know, maybe you ought to look at this a little different. Perhaps you're about to go off half-cocked here and you consider it and you relent and you repent and you go, you know what, that's, that's not what ought to be done. I ought to do something else. And a lot of times when we don't do that, we wish we had on the backside. And so we take what happens with us and then we want to apply it to God. And we go, okay, so here he was, he's really angry. And he says, man, I'm going to bring the locusts and they're going to devour him. I'm going to bring the fire. And Amos comes and says, oh, Lord, please, please release, please forgive. And God says, okay, I'll change my mind. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that God does not change his mind. Ever. Ever. You know, if you just want to look at it from a purely philosophical standpoint, if a being that is perfect and holy and righteous in all his ways ever changes his mind, it is proof positive that he is no longer perfect, righteous, and holy. For there is fault to be found in his reasoning. But philosophy doesn't get you very far with a holy God. His word, however, does. And so, just a couple of examples here. Um, One out of 2 Samuel chapter 15 When Saul, the king who committed the sin unto death, speaking of Saul, it says that Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or, and here's the exact same word, the exact same word, He will not lie or have regret. It was translated as relent in in Amos. Here it's translated as regret. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. We see something similar in Ezekiel chapter 24, where the Lord says, On account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you, and you were not cleansed from your uncleanliness, You shall not be cleansed any more until I have satisfied my fury upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and it shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. According to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord God. The reality is is that God does not change his mind. Now, at this point, 
I think it would probably be necessary, I know this is kind of, you know, the dry, boring stuff, but I think it would be necessary to point out the difference between narrative and didactic texts. Narrative tells the story, and it is written in the common parlance of the day. Didactic text is not written that way. Didactic texts literally dictate truth to you. And so when we think about modern books that would fall under the didactic kind of category, it would be stuff like um, owner's manuals, blueprints, uh, dictionaries, these sorts of things. And so narrative and didactic are two very, very different things. And so on one hand, in the narrative of the moment, you might tell your child after seeing some particularly disturbing behavior out of someone else's child that if you ever embarrass me that way in public, I'll kill you. You will say that in narrative. You will not say that when giving a deposition because one is absolute technical grammar the speaking about truth and reality, and the other one is the way that we use to communicate ideas to each other and to bring some weight to a situation. My daddy ever said, son, if you do that, I'll kill you. I always knew there was some weight to the situation. There's some nuance with what's going on in chapter 7. The Lord relented. The Lord repented. The Lord changed his mind. This particular word that's translated as relent is used 108 times in the Old Testament. 56 of those times, more than half, more than any other translation, it is translated as comfort. Comfort. A good example would be Genesis 24, 67. After the death of Isaac's mother, it says that Isaac brought her, that being Rebekah, he brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And so Isaac was comforted. He was relented after his mother's death. Now, when we think about relenting and comfort, when we think about comfort and the changing of the mind, that is not two things that we normally put together in the same basket in the English language. This is a place where you have a Hebrew concept and an, an, an English concept, and they don't completely overlap with each other. And yet it is the concept that is at hand and what is being spoken of. And so our conclusion in Amos chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, speaking about these first two judgments that God says, no, you know what, I'll relent of that. What we see based off the larger context of Scripture and the didactic text that where God says, look, you're not seeing me in the narrative, you're seeing me going, this is who I am. I am not a man that I should change my mind. I am not a man that I would relent. What we see here is this. 
What we see in Amos chapter 7 is relenting that is not relenting, repenting that is not repentance, and changing of the mind that is not a changed mind. And yet, somehow, it functions to bring comfort to Amos. Somehow, this thing brings comfort to him. And you may be sitting there right now going, man, you're talking in circles. That is loony. It's not loony. It's God being God. It's God doing what He said He would do. It's God teaching His child a lesson. And the lesson that is being taught at the beginning of chapter 7 in Amos is not being taught to the nation. It's being taught to Amos. This is about God and the prophet. Because before Amos can do what he's about to have to do and what God is going to require of him, Amos is going to have to get some things straight in his head, some things clear in his heart, and his feet on a firm foundation about who this God actually is. And this is the means that God is using to get him there. What you see is not some wishy-washy schizophrenic deity that can't decide whether up is down or down is up and whether it's going to be locust or fire or the sword. What you see is a God that is forming, disciplining, and sanctifying his man into what he must be. And to do it, he's about to crawl all up in Amos' head. He's about to crawl all up in his heart. He will read your mail and serve it up to you on a platter. And it's exactly what he's doing. What you see here is a father disciplining his child. Remember what the author of Hebrews said, chapter 12, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? He continues in verse 11 and says, He disciplines us for a good. Why? That we may share his holiness. That we may share his other thanness, that we may share in what makes him different from everything else. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Friends, going from unholy to holy, I would submit to you, is a difficult thing. It's not easy. Painful, requires death and flopping like a crappie and all that kind of stuff. Here you see the Lord doing what is necessary to bring about his good end in his prophet. It's not the only time he does it. If you want to get some understanding, I think, of what's going on with Amos here, you have to see when God has done this before. And there's several different places we could look. But I think this morning, the clearest example for our purposes would probably be in Exodus chapter 32. Because what God is doing to Amos here, he has already done to Moses. In Exodus chapter 32, in verse 1 through 14. Now you guys know the narrative, right? You've had, you've had, you know, the, the people have come out of Egypt with, with you know, <laughs> I mean, with their hair on fire, man. <laughs> Literally, well, with the Egyptians' hair on fire, whatever. They've come out of e- Egypt, and here they are. Man, they've come to Sinai. God himself has descended on the mountain in fire. They have consecrated themselves for three days. Moses walks up cries out to the Lord, and in front of at least six million people, God himself answers. He speaks to them the Ten Commandments that are the basis for his covenant with them. They all look at Moses and go, here's the deal. You go talk to him. 
You go. You go talk to him. We'll do whatever he tells you. Do not let him speak to us again or we will die. And so Moses descends, ascends the mountain. He walks, leaving the elders and the priests of Israel behind, and eventually even leaving Joshua behind, and he walks into the fiery darkness where Yahweh himself dwells. And he speaks with the Lord for 40 days. And right towards the end of this 40 days, the people, how quickly their fickle hearts change. They've decided that whatever's up there has consumed Moses, and he's most certainly dead. And we blew it real bad by leaving Egypt. At least slavery was stable. The devil you know. So, hey Aaron, build us a God to worship that we can have some comfort and some pragmatic security in this crazy world stuck out here in the desert with a mountain that's literally burning before us. And in Exodus 32, verse 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people took off the rings of gold that were in the ears in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are our gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a great feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Do you see what was going on in the desert was a carbon copy of what was being done by Jeroboam I. Likewise, the Lord prepares his prophet in the same manner. There is something about the nature of God that Moses has to get straight in his own heart and his own mind. And the Lord's going to get it to him by playing him like a fiddle. The Lord said to Moses, Go down. First command, go down. For your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves and they've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them and they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. And so here's the Lord saying, okay, I'm done with them. I've seen who they are. I know their character. You're the only one that's being faithful. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down there because I'm going to consume all of them and then I'm going to make a great nation of you. Now anybody that's paying particular attention here will notice that the statement to go down in verse 7 is somewhat incompatible with the consummation that is coming in verse 10. 
If you're going to take Moses, wipe everybody else out, and make a new nation and a great nation out of him, why are you going to take the guy that you're going to make a great nation out of and send him down to the very place where there is about to be absolute annihilation? He would be consumed in their midst. This is not what the Lord is after. What we see here is an unrelenting God relenting. A God that doesn't change his mind, changing his mind without changing his mind. But Moses implored the Lord God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. Sound familiar? Whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Moses is about to have... You, you just think that Moses has seen the greatest challenges in his life. He's only getting warmed up, man. Egypt was a piece of cake compared to what he is about to have to do for the next 40 plus years with these people. And man, they are a stiff-necked people. They are out of line. They are the dog that will go back to the vomit. Almost none of them are the elect of God at this point. Most will die in the desert. And he's got to lead them every single day. Day. There's something that the prophet has to get right in his heart. And it is a clear view of the fact that he is serving the living God and not serving men and the nature of who that God is. And so here's what the Lord does to him. Hey, buddy, you're getting a promotion. Forget about Abraham. Forget about Isaac. Forget about Jacob. I'm making you a great nation. I'm going to slaughter every single one of them. And we'll just start over with you. You're obviously better stock. Moses goes, whoa, whoa. You ever find yourself being much more certain in your faith and in what you believe and much more bold in it in the moment when it comes time to either stand or fall? But it's time. This deal's either rising or it's going to crash and burn. And in that moment, Moses looks at him and goes, no, no, no. No. And the argument is not because of them. And the argument's not because of me. The argument's because of you. You're the argument. No. No, remember, you're a character. You're a God who doesn't change his mind. You're a God that doesn't relent. You're a God that doesn't repent. You gave your word. You promised. How could it be that the Egyptians could say that you did all this just to bring about evil when we know all you do is to bring about good? And it's a very impassioned response. And God goes, oh, really? Is that who I am? Well, I guess it is. 
I relent. It wasn't God that was changed that day. It was Moses. It wasn't God that was changed in chapter 7. It's going to be Amos. And he needs to be changed. Time to learn. Because what God's going to ask of him next, you have to have that view. You have to have that view that says, man, he is a juggernaut that will not quit. And no matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it is, he is good in doing it. He's good in doing it. God has not relented. He is provoking a child to a vivid, zealous, life or death lesson in understanding who he is so that he may stand in faithfulness when the weight of glory is required of him. God says, learn something about me. The locust in the fire, that's not who I am to them or who they are to me in my justice. I swear by myself, God says. Well then, who is he? If that's not who he is in his judgment to Israel, then who is he? These are the two that won't stand. Who he is is what stands in the other three. So he says this. In Amos chapter 7, verse 7, this is what the Lord showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? Now the lesson continues. Now that we've got all that out of the way, let's engage a little bit here. Amos, what do you see? Do you have the wisdom? Do you have the discernment? The clarity to be able to understand what I'm setting before you? Amos, what do you see? And he said, a plumb line. And then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, and I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Judgment won't be by locusts, and it won't be by fire. Judgment will be by the sword, the severity of which is incomprehensible by modern Western standards. We've covered it before, and so I won't labor to cover it again this morning, but the cruelty of the Assyrian Empire, well, it is the stuff of legend. The scourge will come. After it comes on Israel, it will eventually come down into the southern kingdom of Judah. And in 2 Kings, in chapter 21, the plumb line is described like this. In 2 Kings 21, in verse 1, Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. Manasseh was 12 years old when he had began to reign, and he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the depicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. 
For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, the king of Israel, had done and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He built so many that the temple itself wouldn't hold them, so he had to start stacking them up outside. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He carved an image of Asherah that he had made. He set it in the house of the Lord. He set it in the house which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. He was an absolutely despicable human being. Burned his own son as sacrifice. Verse 10. The Lord said by his servants the prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all of the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria. And the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. The Assyrians were fond of taking the heads of the victims from the previous town that they had destroyed, loading them up on carts or in some cases on barges and shipping them down to the next town that they were going to destroy and using them as the basis for building their siege ramps. He says, I'm bringing to you the measuring line of Samaria, the plumb line of the house of Ahab. All that was stretched out on northern Israel, now I'm going to bring it to you, and it is going to be so fearsome that when it comes, your ears are going to tingle when you hear it. He says, I'm going to wipe you out like one wipes out a dish and then turns it upside down. You know what you do when you wipe out a dish and turn it upside down on the shelf? That means you're done with it for a while. That's a pretty intense standard. That's a pretty stark measure. That's a pretty straight plumb line. It's so straight that when you consider this kind of absoluteness and justice, it would cause a lot of people to wonder if that's really the picture of a loving God or not. And I would tell you that it unequivocally is. What is this line? I mean, you know how a plumb line works, right? I mean, basically, I mean, there's some really fancy ones. My granddad Williams had a really neat little brass one back in the day. It was one of those tools I wasn't allowed to touch because you don't want to ding it up or anything, you know. But basically, at the end of the day, it's a weight on a string because gravity works. And so if you need something to be straight, you hang your weight on the end of a string. And if you want it to be pinpoint accurate, more than just a straight string but a very precise point, then you need a conical one with a nice 
square and true shape and a sharp point on the end. It's just a weight on a string, man. It shows you where the definition of what's true is. And so the Lord says, I'm going to stretch this line out on you. Amos, what do you see? What do you see? He says, man, I, I see the Lord in a wall built with Him standing beside it in a plumb line in His hand. And then you find out through Judah what this plumb line is. Man, it's destruction and death and slaughter. As the Lord told Amos, the mortality rate will be 90%. What is this plumb line? The plumb line and its identity is recorded in the book of Isaiah in chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 17. I will make justice the line, and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and water will overwhelm the shelter. The line that God is drawing is a line of justice based on the standard of righteousness. And they have failed both. However, the standard of justice and righteousness that the prophets are speaking about is not an abstract standard as though it was something that the Lord holds to as true but is apart from Him. As a matter of fact, the plumb line that is justice and righteousness is nothing less than a person. If you look in Isaiah, and let's take the context in chapter 28 and verse 14. Verse 14, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. And when the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge. Man, we have drank the Kool-Aid. We've believed our own stuff to the point that even we believe it. We're going to be fine. We welcome the coming of the day of the Lord. This is those that bring their God in their hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone. A tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation, and whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line, and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and water will overwhelm the shelter. If chapter 28, verse 16 sounds familiar to you, it's because it's quoted over and over and over in the New Testament as speaking specifically of Jesus Christ himself. In Romans chapter 9, verse 33, Paul says, as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, 
And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And again, Peter, in his first epistle, in chapter 2, in verses 4 through 8, the apostle says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. The reason Peter says that I can say this to you, this is what's being done to you. You are being made like living stones into a house that can offer acceptable sacrifice. The reason Peter says that he can say this to you is because it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense over and over and over. The Holy Spirit through his apostles in the New Testament tell us that Isaiah chapter 28 is speaking about nothing less than Christ himself. Friends, the plumb line, the standard, the line of righteousness and justice that is being stretched over Israel is nothing less than the standard of Jesus Christ himself. It's not a written code. It's not a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's not a bunch of legalistic rules. The line that is being stretched over them where they are found, want, found wanting is the line of Jesus Christ. Now, God swears by himself. He says, buddy, judgment's coming. What's the standard? I swear by myself. Christ is the standard. And so the question to Amos will be this. I'm about to show you what it looks like when the standard of Jesus Christ is applied to the nation of Israel. And you're going to be the talking donkey. You're going to be the guy that goes and tells them what it looks like, not when they're little plastic Jesus, not, not when they're little, you know, uh, um, label maker sticker Yahweh that they bring in their hand that says, oh, look, this is our God. Don't we look just like him? We must be righteous folks. Not that one. But when the plumb line is drawn and the standard of a holy God himself, not his rules, but his person, when he says, here I am, deal with me. When he comes, it will be slaughter by the sword. You think the locusts were bad? You think the devouring fire was bad? This right here won't be relented upon. And it's coming because it is the expression of me. Not just the expression of some portion of me. Not just, here's what I have to be because I'm just and I really don't like it any more than you. But justice has to have its day. Friend, God doesn't... There is no standard of justice that God has to keep himself under lest he cease to be just. Whatever God does is the standard of justice. Scripture teaches it from front to back. He says, I'm it. So you don't take me to task. You don't hold me to account. You don't go, well, if you do that, you're not just. Or if you do that, you're not loving. Or if you do X, then you're not kind. He says, I am this. I define it. He's not defined by attributes. He is the definition of these things. 
So here's the deal, Amos. Because, buddy, I'm about to make you the point of the spear. You're going to be the guy that has to go run your mouth at people that do not want to hear it. Not only that, what you see will shake you to your core. Because it wasn't that the locust in the fire was too much. It's because it wasn't enough. See, the locust isn't Christ, and the fire isn't Christ. The plumb line is. So now we've arrived at what is fitting, Amos. Do you have what it takes to do it? And what it will take when the Lord shows him the horrors of the judgment that is at hand, what it will take is an unshaking and unwavering absolute assurance even unto death that no matter how difficult it is, that what the Lord is accomplishing is good. That's what it takes. Man, when an unrelenting God relents, He's not relenting. When He changes His mind, He's not changing His mind. He is sculpting His man and bringing him to the place where he can actually be what God has called him to be. The Lord carves on you, friends. Let me tell you, this is a hard thing to say. Scary for me to say it. I've been there. I'm sure I'll be there again. It's like, you don't, you don't want to, you know, it's like when he said, shh, don't mention the name of the Lord, right? He may come and do all this stuff. Man, the Lord starts carving on you, friend. You need to let him. You need to let him. Amos, do you trust Christ's judgment? Do you trust him enough to deliver this message? Do you trust him enough to be part of the means by which he brings about all the horrors that he's about to show you? Do you trust him enough? This is the way the word of the Lord always works. This is what Paul meant when he said, we are the aroma of Christ to everyone. To some and we go forth and we, we preach the gospel. We're the aroma of Christ to everyone and to some. Man, it is the fragrance of life. And to others, it's the stench of death. Who is sufficient for these things? The first mission trip that I ever had the opportunity to go on was to a place, and I kid you not, man, this is truth being better than fiction. It was a place, Mark, in uh, Mexico that was a little town named El Snizo. El Snizo, Mexico. Man, and I had this idea. Man, I was about in the seventh or eighth grade. And I had this idea of what missions was going to look like, man. We know what the Lord says, man. Go forth and make disciples. Right? We're going down there. These poor wretches down in Mexico. Only part, only thing about the Lord they know is some scrambled up kind of eighty percent Catholicism mixed with twenty percent kind of ancestor worship kind of a thing. And man, we're going to go down there and we're going to show them the truth, and they are just going to just come by the thongs, man. All we saw for two weeks was rejection, 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 rejection. We got down there. It turned out they didn't want anything to do with the Jesus we were talking about. 
You start looking at scripture and you realize what that is. That's the indictment against the damned man. And you pray it doesn't stay that way. You pray that the next guy comes and the next guy comes and maybe some little girl comes down there with a gospel track and all of a sudden the glory of God strikes like lightning from heaven and somebody that was dead is made alive. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. And there is danger in these things. And the gospel, when you open the lid on it and stick it out there for them to smell, you don't have any control over what they're going to smell. And friends, if they're left to their own devices, they'll smell death every time. Are you man enough? Are you woman enough? Are you certain enough in Christ to be able to do that? And i got to tell you, in, in the West, a lot of times we're not because then when they do smell death, instead of us being okay with that, and trusting the Lord to do what He's going to do out of some very unpleasant circumstances, what we do is we start trying to figure out how to retool this gospel deal so it will be palatable to you. That's where Amos is at. Are you willing to go, here it is, friends, I love you, I hope you believe it, I hope you come to Christ, I really do. Man, repent. The Lord gives His people a glimpse of what judgment would be. (laughs) Repent. Believe, turn to Christ, you will find him to be good. And you want him to. But the reality is, Isaiah said, not all have believed what they heard from us. So the question for Amos and the question for me and you is when you have this message that is going to be at times the fragrance of life and is going to be at times the stench of death, do you have the foundation about who God is under your feet square enough to be able to deliver it as written? You notice what changes with Amos. I'm done. You notice what changes with Amos? The Lord succeeded in accomplishing the discipline that he was looking to put into his man. He shows him the locust, and Amos goes, oh, no, please don't do that. Please relent. He shows him the fire. He says, oh, no, don't do that. Please relent. And he shows him the plumb line, which is Jesus Christ, and God says, this is what I'm going to do. And Amos says not a word. Yep. That's what you're going to do. And what Amos is going to do next is go be the man that God has now made him to be and deliver a word to a king and a people that do not want to hear it. This is what Jesus meant in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, when he said, calling the crowd to him with his fellow disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You're about to have to go do the hard thing, Amos. Do you trust me enough to do it? When I show you myself and go, this is me, I'm the plumb line, here's what I'm going to do. Do you trust me enough for that to be okay? Or, like Jeroboam, do you think you need to tweak me to make me better? I am so thankful that Amos did not see and that Isaiah did not see and that Jeremiah did not see and that Joel did not see. I'm so thankful that those men, having saw what they saw, did not see fit to try to make God better. 
but let him be as good as he absolutely is, even when that goodness is difficult. And I mean, I'm personally thankful. Personally. Because Amos being the guy that God called him to be right here, and when he says, I'm the plumb line, and Amos just going, mm-hmm. Amos being that man directly led to my salvation. And it directly led to your salvation if you're saved. Friend, if you're a Gentile, and it looks like a room full of mutts to me, if you're a Gentile, then these men being willing to accept this message and then deliver it and trusting that the Lord was using it for good is the very thing that brought salvation to us. Man, Paul says it in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 and verses 11 through 12. Speaking about the nation of Israel and their lack of belief. He says, I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Not being. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. The reason that salvation came to you, the means by which God brought it to you, was the hardening of Israel. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And he's going to give the answer here in just a second. He says, it means life from the dead. He continues in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. Because see, we want to come at this today from a Western perspective, look at stuff like Amos and go, ooh, I sure am glad God's a lot easier going in the New Testament. He sure is a lot more loving and gentle and more accessible in the New Testament. Friends, the plumb line is the plumb line. He never changes. In him there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's the same one. Yeah, but he saved me. Yeah, I know. And he did it this way. Lest you be wise in your own sight. (laughs) Lest you think you can make him better. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. As regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Guys, the human heart is so desperately wicked and self-deceived that people like us, if you allow yourself to operate in the flesh, will look at the things that happened in books like Amos and undermine the means of their own salvation. Man, Paul said, you Gentiles, listen, the reason that it's come to you is because they were hardened. Now, do you want to contend with God on whether it was good to stretch the plumb line across northern Israel or not now? That's the means that it came to me. It's the means that it came to you. 
is because a partial hardening had come on upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles were to be brought in. But the Lord hasn't forgot his people. You know why? Because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God does not change his mind. He hasn't forgotten his people, Israel. He's coming for them too. And he's going to use me and you to do it. A provoking to jealousy that will require the same kind of sure-footedness, clear-headed, and pure-hearted understanding of who God is in his goodness that was required of Amos. It's going to be required of me and you. Do you trust Christ enough? Do you trust him enough when he says, this is who I am, and look, man, it's going to be scary at times. Are you up for it? Friends, if you're not a Christian today, let me tell you what the gospel is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The gospel of Jesus Christ is repentance in Jesus' name. It is putting your faith that he will do the things that he says that he will do, that he will be the Lord, that he says that he will be, and you can come and die, and that's okay, because out of that death he will bring good to you and you will live. But friends, it doesn't change the fact of the matter that you have to come and die. Look, this is the gospel, man. If you don't have it, you should run to it as fast as you can go. Man, you you should repent today. You should believe today. But I don't want you to have a Jesus you can walk around with in your hand that just has the label on it and isn't really Him. I don't want you to feel good. I don't want you to feel secure apart from a reality of security. And the only way you get there is not to try to align the plumb line to you, but it's to be aligned to the plumb line. That's it. And so here he is. He says, come and pick up your cross and die that you may live. Do you trust him enough? Put your life in his hands. We deliver the message as he gives it. You receive it as it is delivered. These are the questions. These are the questions that amount to the weight of glory upon men. I pray that you do. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for the day that you give us. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we are often so far from it. It looks so foreign to us. And yet, Lord, we proclaim that you are good. Lord, we know you are, for you have given us of your Son. You have sworn by yourself. And Lord, we pray that in your good time you will do it. Lord, we pray for the lost. We pray for your people. We thank you for the testimony that we saw today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.